Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. My guest this week is Harriet Walker, whose debut novel, The New Girl, has it all. Fashion, psychodrama, jealousy, you name it. A psychological thriller about the relationship between a magazine editor and her maternity cover, I could not put it down, and I'm not surprised it's one of the year's most buzzed about books. As you can imagine, I was delighted to have the chance to grill Harriet on how much of it was drawn from personal experience. As fashion editor of the Times, she's seen her fair share of Devil Wears Prada-style madness, and how on earth she managed to write it while on maternity leave. As you'll hear, it's a bit more complicated than that. And there was so much else I loved about our chat too, from Harriet's honesty about the imposter syndrome she struggles with as an author, to how she juggled looking after her daughter with working from home in lockdown, to the time she interned at Tatler and was too afraid to speak. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Harriet, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the Sunday Salon. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we say here, but of course, we're not actually um, talking face to face, even though this will be out after lockdown has eased a little bit. We're talking before July the 4th, so we're still doing this mm-hmm. uh, remotely. And I just wondered, I've been asking a few of my guests recently what their their lockdown has been like, and I, I, I wondered what your experience had been like. I mean, you're juggling homeschooling and childcare and working and you're pregnant, <laughs> you've got a book to promote, there's a lot going on. Uh, it has been quite intense. I haven't, I actually haven't been homeschooling because my daughter's three and that has been, I think, one of the saving graces of the whole thing that when she's around, it is full on and, you know, she requires full attention so no work gets done, but at least I'm not having to stick to some kind of curriculum. <laughs> so... The first few weeks I found really, really tough because I was, I just felt very guilty about not being able to do my job properly and not being able to look after my daughter properly and being split and and also feeling very guilty because I was really, really mourning the loss of any time to myself because by the time, um, you know, by the time she was in bed and I'd done my, me and my husband split our working day in half. So we either did a morning or an afternoon with her and then we swapped over and did a morning or afternoon at, at our desks. And by the time that was done, um, I was sort of in my first trimester of being pregnant as well. So I was just exhausted and I went to bed at about eight o'clock every night. And that means there was just no time to read a book or to really even like talk to my friends very much. Um mm. So it was really, I felt quite a lot of despair at the beginning. <laughs> and then obviously, because I think women do this to themselves, I, I beat myself up for, you know, not being grateful enough for actually being quite lucky and privileged in the way I was spending my lockdown. You know, I've got a really mm. supportive partner and we have got, a it's very small, but we have got outdoor space. So, you know, I was trying to be be um, grateful for things as well. So, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> and has it has it got better with time has it eased a bit well she yeah so my daughter's back at nursery now um which was kind of phased in gradually that so that means that I can focus more uh, on my my job at the times which is um full-time and I also had a, a round of book edits to do for the next for my next book which is not out until next year so because because Frida was back in childcare, I I had a bit more sort of space to do that stuff and that was that was very helpful. That took a lot of the stress away. But it was also, you know, it was kind of great to spend that much time with with my child. That's the thing that I keep mm. overlooking, that although it was full on and really tiring, 
I mean, she just loved it. She loved having both of her parents around all the time to herself and no other distractions. So she was really quite happy throughout. (laughs) And it was actually while you were on maternity leave with her that you started writing The New Girl. How would you describe the book? What would be the sort of elevator pitch, so to speak? Well, it's, it's the story of a fashion editor who goes on maternity leave with her first child and spirals into this kind of panic and paranoia around the person who's taken her job but also the strain that having a baby has put on um, a friendship that's very dear to her and it's a book that deals with female friendship at different ages female ambition at work and in your personal life and I guess female rivalry as well and what that can look like and whether it's healthy competition or something that you take on board in a very unhealthy interior kind of way. There's lots there that I would like to ask you um, more about. Mm. But before I do, I wonder if I could just ask a little bit of background. You recently wrote a really fantastic piece for the Times magazine about your sort of time in in fashion. And and one thing that that really uh, made me laugh was that when you were interning at Tatler, you were too scared to answer the phone in case anybody heard your northern accent. (laughs) Can you tell me a bit about your childhood, um, where you grew up and and what you were like as a as a child? Yes, of course. And that I you know I realised I don't really have a northern accent, but by Tatler standards I do. (laughs) (laughs) So I um I was born in in Glasgow and I spent the first ten years of my life in Staffordshire. Um and then we moved to Sheffield when I was nine. Uh, my parents are both academics, so they were moving sort of between universities every time we, we changed location. I'm the youngest of three sisters, so I feel like I was I have been quite indulged. Um, I'm a lot younger than both of my sisters, so I was a kind of surprise and I'm the baby of the family. But I, maybe because I had grown-up sisters who sort of spoke to me like a grown-up I think from quite an early age I, I maybe I've, I've always been I, I sort of started writing stories when I was little um I always had some kind of make believe something on the go on my dad's computer at home whenever he would let me use it that is um I just remember I used to write loads of stories about Sonic the Hedgehog because I was obsessed and I sort of created <laughs> like created a kind of domestic situation for him because I wasn't that interested in him like running around being a superhero I wanted to know what he was like at home with his girlfriend and his kids <laughs> so I wrote loads of stories um I guess I was quite I was quite nerdy but you know I had friends in a social life I think I was quite lucky at the school I went to I just I just went to like my you know my local state school but there was quite a good group of us who were also sort of nerds who liked music and going out so we were kind of normal but quite bookish I suppose. Yes I wanted to ask you about that because you say nerdy you're you're a very chic nerd but I (laughs) I I do I've known you for quite a long time now and and you are bookish and you are you know you're very into the Tudors and um, where where did the interest in fashion which I suppose some might see as kind of some sort of more kind of glitz and glamour rather than kind of dusty terms more sort of uh, ephemeral mm. where did that interest come from I think I've always had it but I think I've I think my interest in clothes is sort of to do with an interest bordering on obsession with kind of social tribes I guess I think that when I was at school I'm sure every school is like this but you know my sixth form common room was like divided along quite clear cultural lines and it wasn't a you know, it wasn't a bad atmosphere there. It wasn't aggressive or anything like that. But I was just always interested in how people fitted into various cliques. And I guess clothing was important to me then. And it always has been. But I think, 
I have I've worked in fashion for uh, I got my first job in 2007, so quite a long time now. But I've always felt that I, if this doesn't sound too pretentious, I've always felt like a journalist who covers fashion rather than a fashion person or a fashion editor. I've never, I've never really subscribed to that kind of, you know, fashion is my entire life. Uh, mm. If I don't have those shoes, I will die. It, you know, if if I'm seen out in my tracksuit bottoms, it's the end of everything. I mean, I'd rather not be, obviously, but I think it. There, different people do fashion very differently. I, I, I see it as a kind of almost anthropological. I'm just quite nosy, I think. So I like observing people, and that's that's the kind of angle I take with it. And how did you get into the the sort of fashion and journalism worlds? How did you go from being this bookish child to working in those industries? What was your path? Well, I so I did English at university, and then I I kind of always knew that I wanted to be in London. Both of my big sisters had moved there. Um, and so I'd been down to London quite a lot and to stay with them. And I just really liked the idea of being, I, I mean, I loved, I love Sheffield. It's such a lovely city, but I remember being frustrated when I lived there because if I ever wore anything that was even slightly beyond the norm. And by that, I mean like a jazzy top rather than like a face mask or a gimp suit or anything like that. Um, you would get comments and people would sort of shout at you in the streets. And I remember coming to London and seeing people just look so different and so fantastic. And again, all these different social tribes mixing and nobody seemed to care or nobody seemed to comment at all. And I loved the idea of being somewhere big and bustling. Um, so I, when I graduated, I lined up loads and loads of internships at various magazines, one of which was the Tatler one where I had to sit in silence in case anyone realised that I wasn't from London. And that's, I sort of got in that way. I was really, really lucky that when I was interning at Glamour, um, one of the assistants left and it was while I was there and they liked me. Um, so I kind of slotted into that that job and that was my first job. And to what extent does it live up to that sort of Devil Wears Prada stereotype I know for instance when you're at Glamour you used to go to sort of exotic shoots all over the world yeah. and, and some of the more senior editors would get their free handbags uh, twice twice a year I mean were you surprised by what it was like did it live up to the the fantasies it did and it also didn't I think I, I must say when I started at Glamour I I got my first job in uh, I think it would be June 2007 or something so it was literally three or four months before the entire financial system came tumbling down and mm. advertising revenues dropped. So I was, I sort of went in at the end of this incredible Gilded Age. And, uh, you know, the actual Golden Age is probably, I guess, the, the 90s, really. But I saw the tail end of this civilization that is now lost um, of giant budgets, big spending, no holds barred, kind of press gifts and trips and things arriving on a daily basis to the office. But all of that stuff was very much for my bosses and for my editors. So I was kind of seeing it, but my reality was being in the fashion cupboard, folding jumpers for, for eight hours a day or, mm. you know, going on shoots. And it was my job to kind of set up all of the rails and line up all of the shoes. So it was like this weird mix of in incredible glamour and also like quite hard labour sometimes. Like I just remember kind of pulling five enormously heavy suitcases up a staircase um, to get to a studio in New York once and just thinking, why isn't anyone helping me? <laughs> and then I realised, because I'm I'm the dog's body, there's no one to help me because this is, I'm there to help everyone else. 
Um, well, that's just what that job is. So, yeah, it was a really funny mix. Um, but I think fashion is that generally. There is that kind of intense glamour and glitz and, and diva-ish stuff on top, on the surface. Although I'd say that's probably more American than, than British. Most Brits don't tend to behave that way. Um, but underneath, everyone's kind of grumbling and going about their business as normal. I remember being really surprised in the glamour office when I first started there because people weren't sitting around talking about what the designer at Balenciaga was doing and why that was important. But they were just talking about what they were going to get from prep for lunch that day. Mm, mm, mm. And what about the front row? How do you get, I mean, you must be pretty seasoned at, at Fashion Week. And I, I, I briefly did a few fashion weeks when I spent mm. some time at Glossy Magazines. And I remember sort of feeling a bit like the new girl at school when it <laughs> came to going and sitting is sitting down to, to watch the shows and where, where your seat was and yeah. and so forth. Can you tell me a bit about the, the front row anxiety and whether that's something you still feel? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing and it is deliberately a thing, I think, from some quarters. There, there are definitely people working in fashion who really enjoy lording it up and sitting on the front row and all of that. I think I have a quite a privileged position because I work for a newspaper, so I'm always sitting with this kind of core of other newspaper journalists and Doing fashion on a newspaper is just by definition very different from doing fashion on a glossy magazine. The mm. types of people who do it are different. The types of jobs are very different. You know, we're all writers, whereas they're, they're mainly stylists and editors. So I think when you're there for a newspaper, you have to be there to cover a show as a news story, a breaking news story. So you're quite alert and on edge to actually write your, your piece. So there isn't really time to sit on a front row and kind of peacock about or um, check your hair several times before you go in you just go in and sit down and there is clearly a visual difference between the super stylists who turn up and sit down to watch a show and the people like me who are a bit probably a bit frizzy and maybe a bit too hot and make <laughs> note frantically as it's as it's happening so I'm kind of over that anxiety I definitely think when I started I felt the need to be you know, per se, a front row person in a front row outfit. And now I just, I'm so much more aware that I am not the story. I never was. Nobody cares if I'm there or not. But my job is to cover it as an event rather than to be there as a, a person, you know, a, a, as a persona. And these questions I'm asking you, this sort of fascination with the industry, I think I'm right in saying is is one of the reasons you came up with the plot for the new girl. It was it was partly uh, when you were on maternity leave and the questions you were asked by the other new mums. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, I sort of got to a point where I had a, a vague storyline or a vague idea of some characters in my head, but I hadn't it hadn't really crossed my mind to set it in in the fashion industry because. I just kind of I, I thought that might be a bit naff but I was meeting all these other mums on maternity leave at playgroups and things like that and or just in cafes and they were kind of asking me about my job and just in as passing conversation um and I kind of re-learned how fascinating fashion can be I I love my job and it's always interesting it's always different but I guess I've just got used to some of the the kind of bonkersness of it and also I got, I've got used to how exotic fashion is a lot of it doesn't seem that exotic to me anymore so when when I was meeting all these new women who were well, not journalists um who were doing jobs that they were maybe not even that excited to go back to I just found their interest was um 
it sort of made me think, oh, actually, maybe I have got quite a lot of things to draw on that could give this book a kind of a background and a depth and and also a, like an interesting pull. I guess maybe I was doing a, I was kind of being the human algorithm and bringing, trying to bring in strands that I thought would be interesting to people. And immediately my job was, um, yeah, I, people really quizzed me on it while I was on maternity leave. And inevitably, because because this sort of scenario is is one fashion editor going on maternity leave and, and mm-hmm. another uh, covering her, people must ask how based on reality it is. How much yeah. did you draw on reality and how do you feel about that question to start start with? I feel fine about that question because, uh, like you say, there are so many parallels and I wouldn't have been able to write the book I did if I was not the person I am, if that makes sense. But, mm. um, you know, there's also lots of things in the book that are not to do with me. There's some some kind of near catastrophes and some some death and some really awful things that um, I'd have no experience of. So I've had to use my imagination. But I think, you know, people say, am I, is, is Margot the main character? Is that me? And I would say no, but I would say that all of the female characters in that book probably are me a bit because it's to do with emotions I've felt and phases I've been through in my in my life. Um, certainly, lots of the fashion stuff is is um, things that I've experienced and scenarios that I thought would be interesting. I guess also just kind of like we like we were talking about shows and front rows and fashion week the kind of mechanics of that and the reality of how it all works is something that people wanted to have always wanted to know from me so I thought I would put that in and I would explain that that's obviously first-hand experience um but I don't I I can't I can't get exercised when people say oh is it a memoir like it's not of course it isn't it's a thriller like my life is not thrilling at all (laughs) but I am lucky to have some kind of interesting context in my own life that I could bring to the book. And what about the sort of, I suppose one of the things that's interesting about it is that it, it deals with female ambition, which isn't something that necessarily gets explored all that much in in fiction. And the sense of anxiety when Margot goes on maternity leave, the sort of fear of, I suppose, losing losing her touch, losing grip with the industry that she's worked so hard mm. to progress in. Is that something that you ever felt at all? Did you did you feel concerned that going on maternity leave might harm your career in some way? I did, yeah. But I think that it wasn't to do with what my job was or which, you know, which office I was leaving. I think it's fairly universal because I think mm. that I think I think women are told that going on maternity leave can make them irrelevant. That wasn't my experience mm. at all. And I know loads of women who do not feel that way. And, and actually, I think it is fairly common to come back from maternity leave with a bit more steeliness to you even, a bit more determination to do your job in a way that is different, more more efficient, um, more humane perhaps as well. But I, but I, yeah, the, the anxiety of, of leaving a job I think anyone can understand that kind of primal territorial feeling that you might get. Um, I, I saw it in other friends before I was pregnant, you know, friends who are very low key and very rational and, and friends with, you know, relaxed jobs in creative industries, not kind of high flying city cutthroat companies. But but they had it too. Mm. It is very, I think if if you are a person who does a job that you care about, I think the job becomes part of your identity whether you want it to or not and so when you sign it off for you know six months or a year or whatever you take it is really hard to come to terms with 
And that coupled with being at home with your baby, which I must say I had a, I was very lucky on maternity leave. I had a really pleasant experience and I had a very good, smiley, sleepy baby. But you're still really isolated in your house most of the time. And you're still figuring out what on earth you're supposed to do to keep this tiny person alive. And even if you're out and about at, at baby groups and seeing people, you're probably not seeing the people that you know the best and your oldest friends, because that, unless you have very happily aligned your pregnancies, that that's just not how it works. Um, so I think every person, every woman who has a baby has a slight identity crisis the first time around. Mm. And what about your maternity cover, your your real life maternity cover? In the book, there is, of course, there's a bit of tension um without giving too much away a bit of tension between Margot and Maggie mm. um I know you have a very because I I happen to know both of you I know you have a lovely relationship with your real life uh, maternity cover was it awkward saying to her that you'd written this book in which the two were sort of rivals how did you sort of break that news to her well I think I, I think I definitely told her over a bottle of wine <laughs> but I think I tried to explain it in terms of almost like journalistic fodder because I felt and this is kind of where the idea came from in the first place that I had left this job that I really like um I felt anxious about moving into this new stage of my life at home by myself and would I be any good at being someone's mum and then also comically me and my maternity cover have the same name and I was just like actually this is kind of too good an opportunity to pass up and not to try and turn into fiction whether it becomes a book or not and so I think my maternity cover, Hattie, under, understood that. Um, she's obviously read the book and she's been very, very nice about it. The book could not be further from how our relationship is or was during that time. She was just beyond considerate about, on one hand, getting on with this job so that I didn't have to worry about anything in the office at all. And on the other, being in really quite regular contact, just on a kind of friendly human level to see how I was doing. So, yeah, the the fiction is fiction. <laughs> And can I ask you a little bit about the actual writing of it? I mean, you mentioned there the sort of you're trying to figure out how to keep this tiny human alive. How did you fit in writing a novel? And and how did you even know how to begin writing a novel? Well, so I didn't I didn't do anything for the first six months. And when I say anything, I mean, I didn't certainly didn't do any writing. I didn't do any exercise. I didn't put any pressure on myself to do or look or be anything that I couldn't face on any given day. And so what I did in those first six months was look after my baby and be out and about and read. I just read loads and loads of books. And Obviously, I've I've always read books. It's a really important part of how I spend my time. But I think as a full-time journalist, sometimes it gets really difficult to, to read and finish novels. And up to the point of going on maternity leave, I think I had kind of let my reading fall by the wayside. Or, or maybe I was focusing more on like long-form journalism rather than novels. So it was a real revelation to have the time to myself while my baby was small. Um, and really, at that point, they're just kind of feeding and sleeping. So... I found myself reading all of these really brilliant female writers um, in that kind of domestic suspense, psychological um, vein. People like Erin Kelly and Louise Candlish and Leanne Moriarty, all of that, that kind of group of women who are really good at spinning, spinning the really kind of grippy, menacing hook out of everyday life. That was the kind of stuff I wanted to read. 
Um, and I feel like that kind of put me in the zone of thinking. I'd, I'd never really considered that I might write anything on maternity leave because it's it's a, it's become such a kind of cliched joke of like, yeah, I'm going to write a book on maternity leave. I just assumed I would turn into like a haunted drudge on maternity leave. And <laughs> I think I partly did. Um, but reading these books made me think, well, maybe I could do it. And And I think having that time away from the deadlines, daily deadlines at the paper, but also not being on Twitter, I think, which was a kind of active decision. I was on Instagram. I was like horribly addicted to Instagram. But um, I decided not to look at Twitter because I just thought I can't. I'm, I'm way too fragile for this. Um, and I think that my attention span changed with being away from that kind of daily news grind or the kind of 24-hour news cycle and I started having longer and longer thoughts because I spent lots of my days when I wasn't reading at home or looking after Frida I was um, out walking with the pram so I just kind of I can't explain it I think I just got my pre-digital attention span back which was Mm. amazing and lovely and it meant that I could kind of think in detail about these characters who were kind of beginning to form in my head and to figure out what was going to happen to them and what needed to happen to them to make it an interesting story and how to kind of knit together all the elements of things I wanted to talk about. But I didn't start writing until Frida was six months. And by that point, I was very, very lucky that she was quite predictable at sleeping um, during the day. So I always knew I would have this chunk of time at lunchtime. So one day I just kind of sat down and, and started, really. And when you sat down and started on that lunchtime... Mm. How did you know how to proceed? Had you plotted it out? Had you sort of googled any kind of methods, or did you were you just sort of free writing, improvising as you went along? I think the very first thing that I wrote, it was just a yeah, it was a kind of spur of the moment improv thing, a few hundred words just to see what would come out. And it was almost like an exercise in creative writing, actually, because it was like you know, I gave myself this brief of write 500 words in the style of xyz any of those those female writers I've just mentioned just to see if I could and then I did and then I thought oh okay well I can't go any further until I know what's actually going to (laughs) happen so at that point then I sat down and I and I tried and mapped out a plot and I kind of mapped out what needed to happen in each chapter but I mean looking back now I'm just I kind of it was so amateurish. I, I didn't look at anything. I didn't Google how to write a novel. I just tried to do what I thought logically would be the way to do it. And maybe that comes from having, you know, mentally planned pieces for the magazine or for the paper or whatever. And so having an idea of like, these are the things you need to say, and this is the space you have to do it in. That's kind of how I work every day at the Times anyway. Um, but that was my approach. It was, it was, um, ill-formed it just I just kind of did what I thought had to happen and so obviously I'm now racked with self-doubt as to whether I'm actually a writer or not (laughs) um yeah I think we can safely establish that you that you are (laughs) second book already delivered on the way um what are you like as a writer in the sense of are you ritualistic presumably if you're fitting in writing around nap times you don't you can't really afford to be too precious no and I don't think I was because at that point when it when I was doing it during the lunch naps there was just no no consideration at all that this would turn into a book it was it really felt at that point that I wanted something to do for myself that was um not work work and not mum work 
I just wanted to feel like I had a project and I guess I kind of used it in the same way as lots of people I know who are on maternity leave like some of them turn to like knitting or or painting or you know just something that kind of proves you're still a person in your own right that's how I saw it it wasn't I didn't sit down and, and think I'm going to start a book and then I'm going to try and send it to a publisher and hopefully it'll be in Waterstones in you know however many years time um it wasn't like that at all it was just let's start this and see what happens um and and to that end I must say I didn't finish it on maternity leave so people keep saying oh I can't believe you wrote a, a book on maternity leave and I always say I didn't I just started a book on maternity leave because to write a whole one I think would be absolutely superhuman yeah so it, it wasn't formal at all and can you tell me then what your path to uh, publication was because it's a book that's had it's not just a run-of-the-mill novel it's you know yet another novel out it's had an astonishing amount of buzz this is a this is a major release you know you've you've signed a, a two book deal in the UK uh, you signed a six-figure deal for world rights it's been optioned for film I think I'm oh. I'm right in in saying so it's, so it's a it's a big book how did you go from this kind of amateur project to actually having it published at what stage do you think you know what I should get an agent um I think that the agent thought occurred to me it was it was actually I can pinpoint it exactly it was um the day I went back to work <laughs> the end of maternity leave um which I had been not dreading because I knew it would be fine to go back and see everyone again but I was really really nervous about it because I just mm. thought I'm going back I mean on, on a very superficial level I'm going back at least a dress size bigger <laughs> I'm going back not having seen the latest season of shows like what if I just haven't got a clue what I'm supposed to be saying anymore um you know now I've had a baby am I old and out of touch and I can't be a fashion editor anymore so I went back in quite nervous um and then did my first day at the Times and it was all completely fine. And it was just like, you know, climbing into a warm bath. It was like lovely and comforting and really nice to see everyone again. Um, and then I got home that night and thought, OK, I'm back at work now and it feels very ordinary and just like it always used to. But if I want to do this this book thing, as I had it in my head, then I need to make a decision about where, whether it's going to go anywhere. So... At that point, I thought, I can't, I, I don't have the time or the strength or the resources to finish a book that isn't going to be accepted by anyone. Um, mm. And I don't want to kind of, you know, that if I, if I were to struggle on and finish this, I would be actively wasting time with my daughter while she was very, very small in order to get it done. So I thought I would send off what I had. And by that point, it was maybe a third, perhaps. Maybe it was like 40,000. 30,000, 40,000 words. And I just, I sent it off to a few agents, um, some of whom were interested, some of whom weren't. Um, and my agent, Laura, picked it up. She was really enthusiastic about it from, from the start. I went in to see her and said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I've submitted something that isn't finished. Uh, and I realised that's a bit naughty because everyone's process is, you know, do not send me something that isn't finished. But I think we kind of talked about you know, being a journalist, I think sometimes, whether it's fair or not, sometimes agents think, okay, journalists are used to finishing stuff. And if, if it's not finished yet, yeah. it probably will be. So I, I just said to her, you know, I'm wor I, I work, I basically work full time. I would really like to finish this book. If you think there is a point to finishing it, what should I do? Uh, and she said, you should finish it. 
So I did, but I think I, I really needed that nod to tell me that it, it wouldn't just be a kind of waste of time. And that was when it became, a, in my mind, a kind of a real project and, and a, a proper book that I was hoping would be published. And when it got to the stage where it was being uh, sold to publishing houses, what was your sort of emotional state? Was it, it Was it just straightforward exciting that there was this buzz or did you then feel a huge amount of pressure? It was terrifying. I found it completely terrifying. I felt like a massive fraud. I think probably for the reasons I gave you with how I wrote it, which was just like, oh, I'll sit down and see what happens. That became, I feel like that went from being a strength, of like something cool that I'd done to something that marked me out as someone who was just not not the right person to have got this book deal. Um, and so in my head, there was all this stuff. I, I felt... I was obviously really excited. I was completely delighted and beside myself and shocked. But I also felt kind of embarrassed somehow. I felt like this was, it had come to the wrong person, that I wasn't a proper writer, that I hadn't gone down through the right channels to do it. And all this nonsense stuff. I I, I don't want to generalise too much, but I will. I don't think men feel like that. <laughs> I was just thinking that exact thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, you know, the more and more women I've spoken to who have done similar things or who've written books or or even, you know, listening to lots of the guests on your on your podcast who seem to have felt similar things of just being a fraud and total imposter syndrome. That's that's how it felt for a long time, especially when it was out on submission. I just thought, oh my God, who do I think I am? What am I doing? I'm not a novelist. I'm a, I'm a journalist and I haven't got time to, to write a, a book. And yeah, it was really mad. It was a very, very strange period of, of my life. What do you think would have made you not feel like that, apart from a penis? Um, <laughs> if, if you'd done like a creative writing course or something, would you feel different? Because plenty of people disparage those, which is not to say disparaging them is correct, but mm. what, yeah. what would have made you feel different? Maybe, 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 maybe that's it. Maybe because I hadn't done the course. And I, to be honest, I always felt a bit, a bit like that with regard to my job in journalism as well, because my route in was, like I said, to go to be a styling assistant at a, at a glossy magazine, um, to do bits and pieces of freelance writing while I was there and to write tiny, tiny bits for the mag. And then my first job, my first kind of writing job, a journalism job was at The Independent where I met you. Um, but I, so I never did journalism training. I went from being an English grad to a styling assistant to a, a writer on a newspaper. And I realised how fortunate I am to have made that that sort of journey. Um, but I always wondered, I always felt a bit like, oh God, I, you know, I don't know shorthand and I didn't go to, to journalism school and I didn't have to read all those really dusty books about defamation and things like that. Um, and so I guess I felt a similar version of that when the book was out to publishers and before I got the deal sort of thinking well there's loads of people who have actually kind of learned to write a novel as a as a skill as a you know almost a kind of vocation and that that's not how I approached it and so yeah I, I felt I think maybe that's where some of that imposter syndrome came from. It's it's out in the US now and uh, by the time people hear this it'll be out in the UK but already previews have been sent out to people and, and one of the things that people really really say about it is it's just extremely suspenseful it really mm. uh, grips you and you want to know what's next and you can't really anticipate what what is next mm. is there a sort of trick what do you think makes something suspenseful how do you maintain that that tension that sort of 
oh, must tune in for the next chapter yeah. thing. Well, I guess when I was plotting it out chapter by chapter, I had it in my head that I wanted the end of every chapter to be not a kind of cliffhanger, but definitely a moment of like, oh, okay, that, that in some way changed the perception of what you had just read or in some way changed how you felt about the people within the, the action of the book. So I, I tried to create a timeline of events or feelings or whatever that um, that gave those moments pretty much throughout. And then I think also I wanted to sort of convey the mental state of someone with a very small child where everything, to be completely honest, for the first few months feels like a real gotcha moment because you doubt yourself on everything. And it's weird. You come to learn, your, to, to, you learn to trust your instincts eventually. But at the beginning, you're doing this thing that's quite kind of instinctive. And then something happens and you think, oh my God, I got that wrong. My whole, in- everything's wrong. I, I'm, I don't have any instincts. I'm not natural at this. I don't know what to do. And I wanted that kind of feeling of, this constant appraisal of whether you are doing the right thing to be throughout the book as well. And I I hope I've managed that in the way the characters relate to each other. And I, I, I wanted that to be part of building suspense, the idea that you can be kind of trucking along in your own life and not realise what kind of an impact that might have on anyone else around you. Not not in a selfish way or not in a narcissistic way, but I think that's that's kind of how lots of I think lots of women sort of lie awake at night worrying about whether they've offended someone and that to me is a version of suspense and and kind of awful paranoia and and this um this kind of invisible threat so I I was trying to get that feeling across in it as well does that make sense yes yes that does have you been reading any of the reviews and comments or are you sort of trying to ignore them? And, and, and what kind of state of mind are you in now as, as you're poised to release it? I have been reading reviews. I've been reading selected reviews. Various people in publishing have told me not to read certain reviews like on certain websites. And I'm more than happy to take their advice because um, I think I'm just far too sensitive to certain things but I think I've also kind of trained myself not to read that stuff with being a journalist like I I very rarely go below the line (laughs) so yeah there are some reviews I'm not looking at because I just think why would I put myself through that I I, the reviews I've had have been so far in in magazines or on websites have been quite kind of short and punchy and that's fine I'm, I'm not really expecting anyone to review it in a way that delves into my craft or you know, I'm not, it's not going to be in the TLS. So I'm not worried about anyone writing a kind of analytical review of me and my mental state or anything like that. So I haven't really had to edit too much of what I'm looking at. But I, yeah, I feel very weird about it being out in the world. I feel like people will be kind of looking through a window into my head slightly, but um, I'm just, coming to terms with that I've I've, lots of people have been very nice about it so that's kind of what I'm clinging on to at the moment and what about the um the kind of pandemic situation (laughs) um I mean of course you were due to do events festivals talks I think you were due to go to the US how has publishing it in this set of circumstances been um and in some ways is it is it quite nice that you get to I suppose be slightly less public facing the first time and then the second book you can perhaps go out and get up on stage or is it just annoying well no I mean I I don't I don't really have anything to compare it to to be honest so 
Um, obviously, lots of people have asked me what, what it's been like. It has been very weird um, putting a book out in a country as big as the States when there are no actual bookshops open is a daunting prospect. I think the week it came out in America, there were it was there were supermarkets and garden centres and that was that was it. And I've been told many times over that debut authors are much more successful when they can rely on footfall and people seeing the cover and people kind of picking things up and having a look. So, you know, I was kind of braced for it to for, to not hear very much back. But at the same time, I don't have anything to compare this to. It's my it's my first novel. I haven't done a book launch before, so in a way, I don't know where to set the bar. If that makes sense, um, mm. the book has it's had some nice reviews in the states. I've had some really good feedback from people who've read it that's all very nice I it, maybe it's nice to be in a kind of cozy bubble in my home and, and not having to put myself out there I think mm. given that I'm a journalist I'm normally the one asking questions it's very rare to find myself in in this kind of situation even I don't, and I'm not very well practiced at it I, I don't do much public speaking I've partly avoided it because I, it makes me very nervous mm. so yeah maybe maybe the pandemic is a bit of a fig leaf for me um, and maybe that's been quite nice but yeah I mean, it was certainly frustrating to to have the, the a few things cancelled um and and not to be able to go over to see them when it came out so yeah but I, I think I've made my peace with it really what's next for you what are you, you I, book number two you mm. mentioned mm. uh when can we expect that and is there anything else you're working on at the moment well I'm I'm working on time stuff at the moment I, I book two is out next summer I think I'm not quite sure of the month but I think it's May or June so I've just handed in another draft of that and I'm sure there's more more editing process to go through with it but that feels like it's basically at the state you know that the the version of it that exists currently I think it won't change much from from that now and the other thing I'm working on is having another baby <laughs> so um that's going to happen in the autumn um so I think there's a few irons in the fire. Yeah, book two is a kind of similar, it's it's not a sequel. Lots of people have said, is it, is it a sequel? Is it the same people? And it's not. But it's a similar sort of book in that it's hopefully uh, very suspenseful, um, very grippy and an investigation of the way women interact together, friendships um, that are forged in university and, and how they continue uh, into adult life. Um how women are treated on the internet, uh, how mm. men and women interact with each other in the age of the iPhone, perhaps as well. So yeah, that that's coming next year. You'll have to come back on and, and, and talk to me again about <laughs> it. It sounds it sounds fabulous. Well, I am going to draw things to a close because we are running out of time. But before I do, I just have one final question, mm-hmm. which. Uh, which I ask everyone, and as you're a, a listener, you'll you'll already know what it is. But but it is, if if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I think it would be that what other people are doing bears no relation to how good you are or how successful you are. And the best way to do your best work is to concentrate on what you're doing rather than what anyone else is doing. I've heard lots of female writers say similar things and I think I think it's Holly Bourne who said she had a she actually has a poster in her room that says her success does not 
undermine yours or something like that. But there is, yeah, there's always this this worry of what your peers are up to and you know how successful your contemporaries are and what does that mean about you. And I think what I've been really glad, really happy to do since being at the Times is just to kind of relax into what I'm doing and to stop making comparisons. As far as you know, I'm 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 only human. I still do make comparisons. But yeah, to my younger self, I would just say, plow your own field and <laughs> stop being obsessive about what everyone else is growing in theirs. That is very, very good advice and a fantastic <laughs> note to end on. Harriet, thank you so much. Thank you, Anna, for having me. Thank you. You've been such a joy uh, to speak to. And to everyone listening, The New Girl is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. And if you've enjoyed it, please do think about leaving a review. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.